This week, my life partner, Chris, is back to fill you in on part two of his journey with getting his pacemaker. Getting a pacemaker can be a bit of a shock for some people. Your heart isn't functioning on all cylinders electrically, so you need to get this backup generator. I still have a bit of PTSD from this, so buckle up as we put it all out there on this week's episode of Wake Up, Kick Ass, Repeat. Hey, Chris. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Patty. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) I admit I did put a little pressure on Chris to do part two of this um, because I feel the information can be very valid. So last week, last week's episode, if you didn't catch it, we talked to Chris about getting his pacemaker and about what that was all about. And um, we talked about the device and the procedure. For most, you go through four weeks of restrictions and then you resume back to normal activity. Well, we were about 10 days into this and had flown home and things didn't quite go that way for us. We spent some time in New York to stay close to the hospital where his procedure was done and stay close to the medical team. And as part of his recovery, I want you to know, you know, he wasn't inactive. We took walks, lots of them, and everything kind of resumed normal day-to-day things. And I would say you felt pretty good when we flew home, right? Yeah, I felt real good. Um, You couldn't lift anything over 10 pounds and everything on your left you were pretty much restricted to is that correct yeah that's primarily so you don't mess with the uh, sutures that they they put in to hold the placemaker in place until it heals okay so about three days after getting home we were both back at work it was a tuesday around 3 30 when i got a call from chris i was driving home chris tell me what was going on in your end i was starting to feel a little not so good that day. I just thought it was uh, dehydration because it gets hot in Florida and I've wrestled with that in the past. But uh, then I started feeling really not good. And I started feeling clammy and sweating and seeing white light and having no energy. And I knew something was wrong. So I called Patty. In retrospect, I probably should have called 911 first, which is, you know, what everyone tells you to do. But, you know, you I I could tell when he called me by the tone of his voice that something was wrong. He wasn't his usual energetic self. And when I got to him, it was not a good situation. It was very scary for me, per se. And, you know, he was clammy. I can honestly say he was grayish in color and um, understand 911 was activated and took over. And they, you know, he had low blood pressure of 90 over 60. So we knew that if he stood up from his chair, he was going to be going down really quick. So they put him on a gurney, took him into the ambulance. And what did they do at that point, Chris? Because I wasn't with you. 
Uh, they just take you into the ambulance. They check all your vitals. They keep you talking. They want to make sure you're all right. They put you in an IV and uh, they take you to the hospital. They, you know, there was a sense of urgency, but it wasn't like the siren was on, the lights were on, and they were going to the hospital, which is nearby Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Well, I was on the phone with his um, concierge doctor in New York, and he said it sounded like a vasovagal episode. And that's basically when your vagus nerve goes on high alert, all hands on deck, fight or flight. So that kind of calmed my nerves a little bit thinking, all right, this is something that we can get through. So, you know, off to the hospital, like Chris said, and we went and, um, and we got there. So when you got to the hospital, Chris, tell me what happened, because I was on the other side of this folks trying to figure out how to get to him. Uh, I was just hanging in for some paperwork, keeping an eye on my vitals. The EMT fireman guys that brought me there were hanging out with me until, uh, I got admitted and they could get some medical professionals to get to me and try to figure out what was going on. So on my side, anybody who knows me, I'm not one who waits patiently. And the ER just happened to be packed with probably over 50 people waiting to be seen. It was a little overwhelming for me. So I grabbed a mask. Um, nobody would tell me where he was. So I discreetly slipped in behind a couple of patient care techs, I think, into the exam area to start looking for him. And that's where I found him. His vitals were hopping all over the place, but it, you know, it appeared that the fluids were paying off and they did an EKG and kept saying he was an AFib and, um, but that the parameters for the pacemaker were also too low. So we were really perplexed with this situation. So here's the bump in the road, folks. When you do not have a relationship with a doctor in the state that you live in, it's tough to nail down medical care to get to you ASAP. Um, so now I, my focus could not be in panic mode, which I'm also known to have. I had to be on a mission to figure out how to do this. And I could not go down my dark hole of worrying. And at this point, they had decided to keep you overnight for observation, right? Yeah, they weren't exactly sure what was going on because, uh, the EKG was saying I was in AFib, but I didn't think I was in AFib and they were, I had a high pulse rate and then a low pulse rate and blood pressure was jumping all over the place. So they, at this point, they quite hadn't figured out what, if anything, was going on and they wanted some cardiologists to take a look. And so they admitted me, supposedly it was going to be one night on a short stay. Well, what's interesting, um, and you learned a little bit about Chris in the last episode, is he comes from an athletic background. So when his pacemaker was installed, they set it with a baseline parameter of 50 because his normal resting heart rate um, prior to the pacemaker had been in the 40s just from all the athletic work that he did. Well, the rep from the pacemaker company came in and wanted to bump him up to, I think, 60 or 70. Is that right? She wanted to go to 70. <laughs> she had never seen anybody set at 50. So we were kind of sitting there looking at each other. And um, I think we just, I, I think we asked if you could just go to 60. <laughs> I knew they could change it to anything they wanted at any time. So I, I really... We were just really trying to play by the rules and get in touch with the doctors up in New York. So 
Um, what were you feeling or thinking at this point? Were you frustrated? Were you concerned? No, you know, you're in the hospital strong professional, so unless something's drastically wrong, you know that you're you're in good hands and not prone to panic. That settles a lot of a lot of things down right away. But you do want to figure out obviously what's happening because it's not right. So just to give you a little bit of a timeline, we were rolling into uh, visitors get kicked out. So a, a nurse came in and said they were going to relocate Cal to a short stay fl floor. The nurses all checked him in and then I was kicked out. So visiting hours were over. Um, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the next morning before I got there. Um, did the doctors come in to see you? What happened? A couple of people came and went, they check your vitals, but I wasn't feeling real well. But in retrospect, I knew something had to be wrong because when they weighed me, they said I was 195 pounds and 185 pounds. I love to eat, but I don't think I put on 10 pounds in, in a night. Yeah, neither neither of us questioned that. It, it was like, oh, okay, he's 195 pounds. So, you know, through the morning, you have several nurses checking your vitals. Anybody who's been in the hospital know that people just come and go, come and go. Well, there is this particular internist that came in, a female, I might add. Um, she did her observatory conversation, listened to Chris's heart and lungs, chatted with us a little bit more, and she left. And I would say she came back about 30 minutes later, kept up the conversation, but she said she had ordered heparin and Eliquis. Now, heparin is for blood clots in your legs, and that was an injection to the belly. And then the Eliquis is a blood thinner in case you have any other kind of clots. She told us it was all kind of preemptive medicine. Um, but we were told, um, if I remember correctly, that we couldn't go anywhere until a cardiologist saw you. So we were kind of just sitting there hoping to get a relationship um, established. And once again, the time is going by and is getting late and we were told it may not happen. So we uh, went into overdrive again and finally made a connection to someone. Um, in comes Dr. Stacy, who was the internist that did all the, you know, checking of Chris's heart. And we could tell I, I, in hindsight for me, and maybe in hindsight for you, could you tell she just kept checking on you as if something didn't add up? Yeah, she kept checking and um, she was pressing on my belly and certain other parts of my chest. And uh, I could tell she was looking, she was asking where there was discomfort and I, and I was telling her. So you could tell that she thought something was, was going on. So they, um, she got authorization and mind you folks, we still have not seen a cardiologist, but she got authorization to do, um, an echocardiogram of your heart. And, and was it a chest x-ray for your lung? Do you remember? Yeah, it was an echocardiogram, uh, a CT scan and a chest x-ray. And she turned out to be Cal's guardian angel, our guardian angel. Um, talk about what happened after those tests. Well, they, uh, they saw a tremendous amount of fluid in my heart. Your heart rests in a sac, it's called a pericardium. And normally that sac is supposed to have a minimal amount of fluid and blood in it. 
and it was filling up with fluid. And what that does, it constricts your heart from operating properly because it can't expand. It can contract, but it can't expand uh, properly. So right away, now we've found out what is causing all this discomfort. And it can be pretty serious because if the fluid continues to accumulate around your heart, you can have congestive heart failure because your heart can't pump properly and your organs start to go the other way. And then they also noticed uh, fluid in your right lung, but they weren't as concerned about that at the moment. No, but they, they said that was related from the same thing. And they also noticed that the kidney function was a little bit off, which was related to the, to the same thing. So we were a little overwhelmed about this information, but amazingly enough, we got to meet a cardiologist and the doctor came in and now I want to, I want to fill in a gap here. Remember, he had heparin, he had eloquence, and on top of that, he also ate dinner. So in comes the cardiologist to talk to us about what he wants to do. Now, we are still in day two. So that's 12 plus hours again at the hospital. So what happened um, once the doctor came in? Well, the cardiologist was telling me, Fortunately, because they had put me on Eliquis, which I ha hadn't been on, uh, they were concerned about this fluid buildup. And the pr proper procedure for dealing with that is um, to drain to drain the heart. And but unfortunately, you are concerned about the Eliquis because if anything happens and you start bleeding and you're on the Eliquis, well, then you'll you'll bleed out. So they were going back, do we wait 48 hours to drain the heart or do we do it now with the increased risk of the eloquence? And, and, you know, they, he, he looked at both of us and I think, I, I mean, I was paralyzed. I think Chris being the patient in a different position, you were more about, let's just get this fluid out of me. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we should, the, the fluid came, I guess in 1% of uh, pacemaker insertions, you can have some inflammation when they put the lead in, or you could have a little bit of a nick, or, or you could have, it could be a multitude of things, but in one or 2% of all pacemaker cases, uh, this can happen. So I, you know, I didn't win the lottery, but I was a 1% in. Uh, yeah, the wrong, <laughs> we're in the wrong 1% club on this one. Um, so th the doctor came in, he, he kind of paced back and forth over this because he made the decision, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to take any chances. We don't want to have to do any blood transfusions, blah, blah, blah. He leaves. And I swear it was like 15 minutes later, he comes back in and he, he said he had talked to the interventional radiologist and that they wanted to do the procedure and kind of told you what the deal was. Yeah, they want to do the procedure because uh, if the fluid keeps building up, they might have to do the procedure anyway. And in a, in a, it's already an emergency, but in more of a critical emergency environment, which is, is not a good thing to pursue. So... I want to share a little bit about that procedure, about what you had to go through. Um, folks, this is a little bit descriptive. Um, so if you have any kids listening, um, you may want to tune this part out for them. But um, Chris, go ahead and talk about what that was like for you when they took you down. Well, I was talking to the interventional radiologist. That's the professional that does the procedure. 
and he told me about the increased risk because of uh, the eloquence. And then he told me, unfortunately, because uh, I had been fed and I do love to eat, that uh, they couldn't put me under general anesthesia, so they had to do it under a local anesthesia. And I would be awake, and uh, he said it would be somewhat uncomfortable. And yeah, I think that was maybe an underestimation of the uncomfortableness of the procedure. But you are awake during it, and uh, you see them coming at you with that Frankenstein needle, and they put it in through your chest, and they take all the fluid out from around your heart. And they do that, and they then put a, a drainage tube into your heart, and uh, they allow any excess fluid that they haven't been able to get to drain through the drainage fluid over the course of uh, it depends how many days it takes, and then they check the level of fluid and blood that is coming out, and when it gets down to what it's supposed to be, and they're convinced that no more is coming in, they take the drain out and send you on your way. So Chris, got a, he was my hero on this. I can't believe he went through it, and I mean, and it didn't take long. You, I don't think you were gone 30 minutes. I mean, it was, or at least that's what it seemed like. And so I, um, I begrudgingly left him in the hospital 11 o'clock that night. He had been bagged. He was exhausted. I was exhausted. And, you know, I went home to just cry my eyes out and um, do like my mother used to do when she was stressed, scrub the floors. So I finally went to bed. Um, I do remember they said the goal was every 12 hours they would be checking uh, the bag for the effusion and we wanted it to go down each 12 hour check. So I got back to the hospital. Uh, Chris looked a little, now this is from my perspective, he looked a little beaten up and exhausted. Um, he was a little weaker, but his color was so much better. Um, I can be honest, I never have dealt with a bag of effusion and um, I can't believe I didn't pass out. The powers prevailed and I was able to deal with all of it. So at this point, Chris, um, the next morning, how were you feeling? Uh, I felt a lot better. And, you know, being the colorful person that I am, I uh, was feeling optimistic because I was definitely feeling better. Had you met the new cardiologist um, and the electrophysiologist at this point? Yes, I had a new cardiologist. It's Florida-based, so I have a, a New York cardiologist now and a Florida cardiologist. And the electrophysiologist, who is a very, very smart guy, is an impressive guy, he immediately saw what they had done, and he consulted with New York, and they decided that let's put the pacemaker back the 50 where it was originally set. So at this point, the one thing they wanted Chris to do is walk. And we took the hospital floor by storm and, and walked laps after laps. And it was a slow start. Do you recall how your energy level was at the start of this process? Yeah, at the beginning, it was, it was labored and it was hard, but I have a rule about once you get in the hospital, your whole focus is doing anything and everything you can, no matter what that is, to get out of the hospital. So uh, I just kept walking and walking and walking. And with those little sockies they give you, I think uh, I cleaned you out. 
<laughs> now, before we go any further, I want to give a big shout out to all the nurses out there, all levels. We Me had they, we <laughs> we had the best care we could have hoped for the entire time. Not to mention, if you get stuck in a hospital, make sure you learn how to use the portal because with the hospital portal, we were able to stay on top of Chris's labs, all the reports, everything. It is so important to learn how to use your hospital's app. It can tell you everything and it helps you prepare to ask questions for the doctors and nurses as they come in. So I want to get back really quick. They came in 930 that night to check your effusion. Um, what were they hoping for at this point? It was drastically draining as a basis of comparison when they originally took the effusion. Effusion means a combination of fluid and blood. There were uh, 500 cc's, which is, that's a lot. It's um, that's about, about half, yeah, that's about, about half a liter. Yeah. And then, the, then they took it again. It was about 50. And then they took it again and they got it down below 40. Then they took it again and it was, you know, minuscule 10 or, or seven. So once again, off to home I go, more calls to my posse out there. And thank you for everybody that rallied around me. You know who you are. I did a little more cleaning and a little more crying and off to bed I went. So now we wake up, it's day three, things are improving. Your energy was slowly coming back, right? Yeah. Good. Now you haven't talked much about your breathing um, because of the lung issue. Did you notice anything with regard to that issue? I didn't know what it was from. Uh, I, I wasn't short of breath, but I could tell that my breathing was uh, a little bit constricted. Like I could walk at a pretty good pace, but I don't know if I would have been in condition to go start jogging and running like uh, I've always been able to do. Right. So another 12 hours has gone by and they checked that bag and the electrophysiologist came in at this point and he was very specific about the pacemaker, the drain, etc. Tell us about that check. Uh, he just came in and said he wanted to see me, that the pacemaker was uh, working the way it should, that this has happened to him as well. It happens in like 1% of the cases. And uh, then he said, this is gonna hurt a little bit. And uh, bedside, uh, he took that, uh, that drain out of me, which was pretty good because if he hadn't done that right then, there would have been a whole procedure to take it out, which probably would have been another day in there. Right, and you know, <laughs> the clock was ticking. And like Chris said, the goal was to get him out of there. And I can say on the last day, um, Chris was the only patient, I believe, that walked over two miles on the cardiac floor of Sarasota Hospital. And it was not brisk, but we were certainly getting it done. And that drain came out first thing on uh, day five. So we had one more hurdle, and that was the, um, I think you had a final chest x-ray and an echo just to make sure everything was clear, right? Yeah, they wanted to make sure there was no uh, buildup of the fusion. And uh, then they're going to check me in a week or two. You know, you got to make sure your mind doesn't play tricks on you because after I got out of the hospital, I started working again. Um, I picked up a cold from a family I was showing property to. So now you're like, oh, I have a cold. Oh, is anything going on and everything? But I've always been an advocate of 
we deal with what we know and we don't speculate about what we don't know. So we endured folks. Yes, Chris is now in the 1% club for pacemaker uh, install. Um, I don't want to call it a fail because it wasn't a fail. It was just an obstacle. Um, but we got home and we still had a couple of weeks of pacemaker protocol healing. I can speak from the heart that being a caregiver and advocate is more stressful than one might think. This is my third round of this in my lifetime. I have a little bit of PS PTSD. I'm proactively dealing with it to deal with it. Um, I think every time Chris sneezes or coughs, I'm constantly going, are you okay? Are you okay? So I, I say this to anyone who steps in to be a caregiver, find space to breathe, take a walk, write down your feelings, lean on your friends, accept help with meals, shopping, cleaning, whatever it is, because we're not infallible. Being there for someone is a beautiful gift, but it does drain your body and can drain your soul a little bit. And I applaud all our doctors and nurses. I don't know how you do it day in and day out. I think of COVID and everything that they went through. Um, they certainly chose a profession that is fulfilling, but it's not easy. Every medical professional comment also, I'm going to have to say this, how pleasant kind and thoughtful Chris was as a patient. Yes. <laughs> and thoughtful. I would like the same words that you used to describe me. It does sound like a report card, but that truly was what Pleasant, <laughs> and thoughtful. That's what was written all over the observatory notes. So um yes, I can honestly say that he can be pleasant, kind, and thoughtful. But I want to wrap this up because this is my second podcast where I have talked about somebody that has had cardiac health issues and they have come out on the other side with both arms up in the air. Get your checkups, get your blood work done, pay attention to changes in your body. Don't hesitate to contact 911 learn CPR and AED, it, be grateful for your health, your friends and family, and perhaps all the people that will take care of you. Uh, I am just so grateful that Cal is still here. Um, Cal's grateful, Cal. I'm still hovering over him. And to anybody who really, the other question I've been asked that wants to know, is everything truly working Yes, it is. That's you, <laughs> Please take time to share this episode with your friends and family. Like and follow the podcast, too, so we continue to build our community. Um, feel free to DM me or Chris with any questions about this. Life can change on a dime, people. So keep training with a purpose for sport and life. Peace and be well. Thanks, Chris. All righty.